Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. On today's episode, I'm joined by Sarah Gare. Sarah is a licensed clinician, author, speaker, and thought leader. She also speaks very openly about her experience as a survivor of multiple suicide losses. Most recently, Sarah has worked to provide training to first responders about trauma and suicide prevention, and she is also a crisis responder herself. On this episode, Sarah and I talk about her experience surviving a cluster of suicides, including the loss of her best friend, the work she is doing studying the soul and how it is forgotten in modern psychology, We talk about the concepts of soul exhaustion and soul care. Then we talk a little bit about the Guts, Grit, and the Grind project, which is focused on men's mental health. And finally, we talk about some of the unique challenges facing men when it comes to mental health and suicidality. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sarah. Um, I first heard her speak at the American Association of Suicidology Conference this year. Um, and was really excited to be able to connect with her for this podcast. And I hope you enjoy it as well. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode is brought to you by CNC Resourcing. Dana at CNC provides one-on-one business coaching, customized training seminars, as well as continuing education around creating safe spaces for survivors of suicide loss. This course is free for students and non-professionals, and you can earn up to three NBCC continuing education hours for taking it. Dana is actually who I use for my business coach, and I would recommend them to anyone looking to grow their business. If you're interested in learning more, you can check out the link in the show notes or go to home.ccresourcing.us. Sarah, good to see you. Hi, Rob. Nice to see you too. How are you doing today? It's the Friday before our long weekend. How could I not be fantastic? I am right there with you. <laughs> Much looking forward to it, even though it's going to rain all weekend here. Oh, no. That's okay. We'll work around it. Um, I'm really excited to be able to sit down with you today. Um, so, Sarah and I met, was that a month ago already? At uh, the American Association of Suicidology Conference for 2023, which was out in Portland, Oregon. And I had the pleasure of sitting through uh, a couple of Sarah's sessions. Um, And some of the content that was presented then is stuff that I'm really looking forward to diving into today, Um, especially some of the work that Sarah has done recently around not just the soul, but the concept of soul exhaustion. Um, if, if you're listening and have no idea what that means, uh, neither did I, but Sarah does such a fantastic job explaining it and why it's important, not just for maintaining our own mental health, but how it's, um, how it's entangled in the world of suicidality, both for folks who die by suicide as well as folks who survive a suicide loss. Um, so I think that's where we'll, we'll spend a good part of the conversation today. But before we get into that, 
Um, as, as we were talking about right before starting, Sarah, I know you have the experience of surviving uh, what, what you called a cluster of suicides, which is um, multiple suicides occurring within, within your circle in a short period of time. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that experience with us um, and either what, what you learned from that experience or what you would say you learned from losing those folks to suicide. Yeah. Um, so it was a horrific time in my life. Uh, as you can imagine, Rob, the first friend that I lost, I was 17 years old. Uh, you know, this was back in the day before we had FaceTime and social media. And so I would spend hours and hours and hours on the phone with this friend and just chatting. And, you know, I certainly knew that he had some significant mental health things happening. Uh, what I could not have ever predicted was that he would die suicide by cop. And oh, it, yeah, and, and, you know, you have to think this was 1993, right? 1995, maybe. Uh, and so if, if people think we don't talk about suicide a lot now, um, we didn't talk about it at all then. And it was, it was a truly devastating uh, experience. And I, I would go so far as to say it was really traumatic for all of us who were impacted by it. And then about two years later, I lost another friend who I had been really close to in high school. I hadn't been as close over the last couple of years, but it was somebody that I really adored. And interestingly enough, he had actually lived for a little while with my best friend's family. And so I, I knew him in that way too. And at that point, um, when he died by suicide, uh, my best friend, had already had five suicide attempts. And, you know, I very distinctly remember going to his services and running into her in the parking lot and just having this absolute horrifying sinking feeling in my gut that losing him, especially losing him to suicide, was going to skyrocket her risk. And sure enough, within two months, she had made another very, very dangerous uh, suicide attempt, which actually had left her in a coma for a few days. She survived that um, and actually came back to the college that we went to together. And then we lost her in January of that year. Uh, she, she had been 21 years old for six days. And so for me, I was um, just a little bit younger than her. And I can honestly tell you, this experience defined in many ways who I am as a person. And so it's something that I continue to carry, you know, with me. I think I've done a lot of work. I think I, I have reached a place of accepting all of it as much as one can, but it certainly stays very relevant to me. Yeah. Thank, thank you for sharing that. I'm just trying to imagine what that must have been like for you, especially at such a young age, um, trying to make sense of, everything that comes along with just being a kid in high school and the world around you. And then all of a sudden you have these three profound losses in such a short period of time. And, and like we also talked about uh, be, before starting the conversation today, um, contagion is something that is talked about fairly often, not as commonly seen, but it's something that sounds like you've certainly endured in your life. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about those two things. So just what some of that experience was like for you and 
having endured um, essentially uh, a cluster or a contagion event, what, what your take is on that and where you see some of the risk factors being for that occurring? Well, I mean, we know the research is very clear that exposure to suicide increases the risk for suicidal intensity for people, right? So I think one of the really important things that we're doing a better job with now, but did not exist at all when I experienced it is postvention and the importance of getting to people as soon as we possibly can and helping them to understand some of what they can expect in that in that grief journey, especially when it's young people. And, you know, it is it is terrifying. I absolutely experienced, especially after my best friend died, some pretty significant acute stress symptoms. Uh, and, you know, of course, the first thought I have, I'm, you know, I'm 20 years old, I'm, I'm having these terrifying nightmares, I'm having, I can't sleep, I'm, I'm going through all these things, which are the acute stress of, you know, and, and even, I mean, it went on for a long time. And obviously, of course, I, I start to think I'm losing my mind, mm-hmm. right? Because nobody said to me, here's the things that might happen to you now. Uh, and so I, I think it's really important for us to have systems in place and an infrastructure that we can be connecting with these young people. We're doing a lot better um, in Massachusetts. We even have funding throughout the state for trauma response teams. And we we have a long way to go. So contagion is not, you know, it's not as as prevalent as people often fear that it is. But certainly we know that suicide increases risk for, for the survivors. Yeah. And, and if it's something that happens even once, that's that's too much and something we need to focus on. Can, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on specifically within the state of Massachusetts? You talked about some of these crisis response teams. I'm wondering if that's uh, through some of the work that LOSS does uh, or if that's separate from that. And maybe some of the other things that you're involved with, um, involved in in the state that, that give you hope about where we're heading for suicide response and postvention. Yeah. So we do have at least one LOSS team in Massachusetts. That is still a fairly new uh, that loss team has been there for a while, but there is work to get more teams popped up. Um, the other thing that that the Department of Mental Health and the Department of Public Health ha- has done is fund a trauma response team statewide. And so uh, I used to work for Riverside Trauma Center. They're the ones who manage that. Uh, and what that means is any public organization, so I would say the majority of the time it's schools, um, that experiences suicide in their in their school, whether it's a staff person or a student, have access to not only trauma response, so clinicians who will come in, but also to consultation to help them uh, know how to sort of communicate and work around services and do all those pieces. Because if you've never dealt with something like this, it's it's obviously very daunting, and oftentimes, you know, the the staff and the administration are survivors too. Right. Absolutely. And and so it's a really overwhelming experience. And so I, I hope someday that every state in the United States has, um, you know, allocated funding to make sure that we are able to provide that postvention, um, you know, not just to the family, which is very, very important, of course, but also to all of the other people in that individual circle. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely gives me hope to hear that. I'm, I'm in North Carolina, where as far as I know, we, we really don't have any state funding 
for suicide response or postvention. I don't even know if we have a Department of Mental Health, um, to be completely honest. Um, but <clears throat> it does seem like more and more states are um, adapting, uh, ad adapting ways that are taking giant steps forward. I'm wondering what your thought is if some of these services would have been available um, in 1993, 1995, when you went through your cluster of losses. Um, do you think there are things with the services they, the way they are now? Could they have helped the situation? Could they have been helpful to those in your circle? Or do you think that there's still so much more work to be done to be to really understand how suicide loss could affect suicidality and survivors? I think there's still a lot to be done. Um, with that said, I've actually thought about this question a lot. And because of the amount of trauma that I had in such a short period of time, you know, I was very, very, very angry uh, at, at, at probably close to everyone. Uh, I felt really that all three of my friends had been failed. And I, and I had some pretty valid reasons for feeling that way, um, being honest, you know, I think the piece of it that would have really mattered to me was that when you have a response, when you have people who come in and they say this terrible thing happened and we're acknowledging that that, that, that happened to you, um, there's something incredibly comforting in just that acknowledgement. And for me, when nobody responded, right, and there were certainly no institutional responses, meaning this, the, the school that I was at didn't respond in any um, organized way, it really felt like nobody understands what just happened to me. And, and it was very, very lonely. And it was interesting because about six months after my best friend passed away, the last of the three, um, I went out to dinner with a group of her friends. And I walked into the restaurant and I was really embarrassed. I didn't, I actually didn't really want to go. And the reason I didn't want to go is I had gained about 40, 50 pounds in six months. And so I was embarrassed to show up. And I got there and I saw a group of people. So I sort of assumed that's, that's going to be them. And as I got closer, I second guessed that it was them because each and every one of them had gained a substantial amount of weight. Mm. Um, you know, and so there's these things that happen to us when we are suicide loss survivors that nobody prepares us for. And so that's why I think that in postvention, one of the most important things that we do is prepare survivors for all of the different types of reactions they may experience so that they know when those things happen to them, if they happen, because sometimes they won't, but if they do, they know that that is part of the, the loss and the trauma that they've had. Um, and so I do, I don't, think it would have gotten rid of all of the pain and suffering I experienced, but I do think it would have had a really important impact on me. Absolutely. Yeah, I, d I definitely relate to what, what you shared a little bit earlier, which was after, after losing your best friend to suicide, not too long after that, there was this feeling of like, am I losing my mind too? Like, what is going on here? I don't really understand what I'm experiencing. And that is textbook what I experienced after my dad died by suicide. It was maybe six months after losing my dad. Um, I was doing everything I could to kind of keep together. I still had a job. I was living on my own. And there came a point where everything just stopped working all at once. It was like all the little 
steps and pillars to that you maintain in adulthood just all fell out from underneath me and the acute depression that I was feeling this grief that I didn't understand or know how to process it just all kind of took took over and that's when I ended up hospitalized um, and maybe for the first time got some of that validation that you said was missing which I met with a grief specialist when I was in the hospital um, she provided a pretty helpful book that I could read and talk to me about what I was experiencing was was really the grief of losing my dad. And I had no idea that grief could make me feel as intensely as as I was feeling in that moment. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned that after going through these losses, there was this feeling that nobody understood because there was no no type of calculated response to what you had gone through. I'm wondering if, if in your personal life, did you feel like the folks that were closest to you and around you understood? Were they supportive in their own way or f for no fault of their own, was there not an understanding of how to support you and what you were going through? Yeah, I, I was really fortunate in the sense, if you can say anything about this was fortunate, here's where I was really fortunate. My parents did not really know the first two young people who died, but they did know my best friend very well. And they had seen her suffering. They had seen her struggle. We, we had been terrified that we were going to lose her six times before, right? And so I was really fortunate in that way that my parents, uh, my mom and my stepdad, were incredibly not only capable of showing up for me, but it also mattered that they were grieving her too. Uh, I think that was really important. Unfortunately, the way the human mind works, we often gravitate towards the terrible things that people say or the people yeah. who don't understand more. Um, but I look back at it and I, I really don't know what would have happened to me had I not had that support of my parents. I also had a couple of teachers, one at the community college that I was at, one that was a high school teacher um, that my best friend and I both had had that also were really, really good to me. With that said, I had some people say some really harmful things to me and I know they were trying to comfort me, uh, but trust me when I tell you it was not comforting. I had one friend who tried to convince me that I really shouldn't feel bad because of how selfish suicide was and it basically tells you everything you need to know about who she was. The only benefit or the only consequence of that statement was I never spoke to that person again. Um, because that is not how I feel about her. And so I felt um, that she had really been disrespected, that she had been misunderstood. Um, and so I think that's one of the other things that's really important is for us to help teach people how to support someone else when they've lost a loved one or a friend to suicide, because those types of things can be incredibly harmful and isolating. You know, and the other was the sort of like, when are you going to get over that? Uh, and I can tell you, it's been over 25 years and I'm not over it. So uh, I, I think that I have done my work and, you know, I'm in as good a place as I can be. And overall, my life is really good, but I would not tell you that I'm over it. Yeah. And I think it'd be crazy to expect you to ever be. Um, this is someone that had a huge impact on your life that you lost in a devastating way. I, I don't think you ever get over that. I think you learn how to integrate it into your life. And 
walk in step with with the grief and the pain. Um, you, I'm, I'm right there with you on some of the awful things that we hear from people um, after losing a loved one to suicide. And I really believe almost 0% of it is malicious. Um, it's just we are not at all taught how to support someone who's going through that. So the people who told me that my dad's death was selfish, the people who told me he's in a better place, this is part of God's plan, um, all things that were well-intentioned just made me want to crawl out of my skin hearing them because they didn't realize how unhelpful that was. And what I'm wondering is, what are some things that you would say are helpful that we could say to someone who went through experiences like, like you and I did? Yeah, um, I can tell you, you know, one of the things we hear a lot from families who've lost a loved one to substance use disorders or have a loved one suffering is tr treat us the way you would treat anybody after a death, right? If you would normally show up with a casserole, show up with a casserole. If you would normally send flowers, send flowers. I think you know, it's been a long time and yet I very distinctly remember the relief I felt when my aunt sent me flowers when she died, right? right when my best friend died, right? Because that's what you do when someone dies. Uh, it, it, assuming that's your culture. For me, that's my culture, right? Right. And so I, I think the most important thing to say is do what you would do under any other circumstance, um, as far as calling people, sending a, a card, you know, and I also think it's okay to say, I don't know what to say to you. I think it, we have to become okay where when you try to make someone feel better, which is what those comments were, right? When somebody says to you, oh, they're in a better place, you're trying to make me feel better. When somebody says it was selfish, even though it really is sort of a mean thing to say, th their goal was to try to make me feel better. And what I've learned is that the majority of the time when you say things with the goal of making someone feel better, there's a really good chance that you're not going to achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would rather you say, I don't know what to say to you, um, than, than say something that's going to be harmful. I think the other thing is let people talk about it as long as they need to. You know, I, I remember within months of her dying, I would go to say something and I could see on people's faces like, here we go again. And it was like, and I can remember people saying sort of like, well, do you think that continuing to talk about this all the time is helping you? Well, I don't know. I just know I need to keep talking about her, right? Like I have no idea if it's helping me or not. Um, and so having patience for people and understanding that they need to talk about it as long as they need to talk about it. They need to cry about it as long as they need to cry about it. Um, and really supporting folks in whatever it is that they need for themselves. And for some people, you know, I can remember a trauma response that I did that was, it was not a suicide, but it was also a horrible event. Um, and the kids were all going out and playing and the adults were horrified. They were like, <gasps> like, don't the kids understand this terrible thing happened and they shouldn't be playing. And I was like, no, but they should be. Right. So it's also letting people recover in whatever way that looks like. For some people, it is going back to life as normal. Sometimes that's what they need. For other people, it's being allowed to be stuck for a little while. Um, so really, you know, and also don't be afraid to ask someone what they need. People often do know what they need from you when, when they're in that place. Um, so I think it's it's really important to say, what how, how can I show up for you right now? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great answer. And it made me think of some of the conversations that I've had, you know, 
in, in either meeting new folks or getting to know them better. And they ask about my parents and inevitably the conversation comes up of, yeah, my dad, my dad passed away. Oh, how did, how did he die? And then it's like, oh, he, he died by suicide. And I know, you know, the response that usually follows, which is, oh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. And that's where the conversation ends. Um, everyone's uncomfortable and rightfully so, right? But I think some of my favorite conversations that I've had is where that's met with curiosity, um, where folks just ask, what, what was that like for you? Um, did you know he was struggling? What was your dad like? Um, just people being willing to kind of go to the uncharted territory of having an uncomfortable conversation has been really, really meaningful to me when, when that's been able to happen. I think that's a really important point, Rob, is that we don't want our loved one to be minimized down to just how they died, you know, because they were, they were so much more than that. And, you know, being given the space, I, I think it's important too to use people's names. Yeah. You know, when possible and to just acknowledge that it was a whole person and, and they weren't defined by their death or their hardest moments in their lives. Absolutely. I want to shift gears a little bit and, and talk about these experiences that you went through and how that set the stage for the path that you find yourself on now, which is doing quite a bit of work in suicide prevention. Um, you've written books that are focused, if not specifically on suicide prevention, on overall uh, mental health and mental well-being. Um, a lot of the work that you've done as a clinician and in the state of Massachusetts is closely related to suicide. Um, I don't want to make assumptions about the connection between the events you went through and where you focus your work today. Um, but could you tell me a little bit about that connection and how you found, found yourself where you are today? Yeah, I can. It's an interesting story. Um, I, you know, I was very young when I got into psychology as sort of a, a field. I, and it just, it was as simple as I was in an intro to psychology class at a community college and I was fascinated. So I kept taking more of them. Uh, and I had just accepted a internship working at a girls residential program in Massachusetts when my best friend died. I hadn't even started it yet. I had accepted it, but I hadn't started. You know, and, and I, I have no doubt that loving somebody who had experienced at that point, I want to say it would have been five suicide attempts. I'm, I'm sure that my friendship with her played a big role in my wanting to help those girls in particular. Right. Uh, but when I got the phone call that she had died, I think it was the next day, I called the internship and I said, I don't think I can take this job. I don't think I can do it. And they said, you know, go ahead and take a little bit of time and think about it. If you want it, it's here for you, which was a really great response. And my mom sat me down. My mother is a very brilliant woman. She doesn't think she is, but she really is. She sat me down and she said, Sarah, you can always quit later. But I think if you don't try it, you're always going to wonder if you if you should have. Mm -hmm. So I decided to try. And my mother was right. I got in there and right away I loved the kids. Um, I saw so much hope in their eyes, you know, and I really felt that I could make a difference. I had no intention of doing suicide prevention work ever, um, really. You know, so what happened was as I'm working with these kids in residentials and, and many of them had 
really similar stories to the three friends I had lost. They shared a lot in common. And so I saw it in a way as that work was, you know, it, it was making meaning for me. You know, when other staff didn't want to work holidays, which I totally understood, um, but I wanted to because I felt like it was an opportunity to make this kids hol- these kids' holidays better. And so I really was in it for the heart and soul of the work. Um, but I very quickly realized that it was too emotionally taxing for me. You know, watching these kids who were so powerless in the system they were in, I hope that we've made lots of good changes. But back then, we had some practices that I felt were really um, not only not helpful, but I felt were harmful, especially around behavior modification. And so I left there and decided to do outreach work, therapeutic outreach. Um, this like seemed like so. So I was still going to be with kids. It was a way better plan. And I loved it, right? So my job is I take kids to the movies. I take kids bowling. I take kids to the park. I take them hiking. I mean, it's awesome, right? I love it. And it's basically the same group of kids. They have lots of underlying challenges that they're facing. Um, But what I hadn't realized was the benefit of working in a residential program is now sometimes I'm bringing these kids back to homes where I don't think they're safe. Whereas at least in the residential program, I knew the kids were physically safe in the program. Uh, And so very quickly, I concluded that maybe I'm just not cut out for working with kids because it it just was so, it was was really hard. And so uh, I decided I was gonna go back to school and I was gonna get a job um, working with adults in substance use treatment, right? You can can sort of follow the track. Uh, And this seemed like a great idea because they're adults, so they have control over their own lives and right. No, Um, no, they don't. They're also stuck in a system. But the other thing that really struck me is that they were just bigger versions of my kids. Almost all of them had had the same history. Um, So I ended up taking a break. I loved I loved the work, but um, I ended up having my my second child and taking a break and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with myself. And just by chance, ended up doing volunteer work with veterans. Um, mostly Vietnam veterans, and almost all of them had really significant trauma. And so because of my love of them, I decided I was going to go back and get my master's degree uh, and do trauma treatment with veterans. That was the plan. But I failed to do one really important thing before I went back to school, which is I didn't take the time to find out what type of degree I needed in order to work for the VA. And after finishing three years, $60,000 in debt and two internships, I find out that the VA would not allow me to do the work I wanted to do with the degree I had. My gosh. Right? I mean, like kind of earth shattering. So I'm like, what am I gonna do? And so I started applying for jobs. I get offered an outpatient job in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I'm like, well, until I figure out what I wanna do, I guess this is what I'm gonna do. And I'm so glad, honestly, in hindsight, that everything happened the way that it did. But here I am, fresh out of my master's program, working in a community that has a lot of violence, a lot of poverty. Um, And I'm going to guess, and it is a guess, but I'm going to guess that about 50% of the people I was seeing were talking about wanting to kill themselves. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. You know, for me as a loss survivor, that I, I, that there's a reality in that statement for me that I think for other people who aren't lost, lost survivors, 
they have a little luxury of not feeling the same level of fear that lost survivors might feel in that moment. So I thought about quitting. I thought my whole life was a mistake. I should never have gone to school. I shouldn't have gotten a degree in mental health counseling. I'm out. Uh, and then I realized, of course, my husband would probably be really angry uh, if I did that. So the next best option in my mind was to join the crisis team. And I figured like, obviously I'm gonna learn everything, right? Cause where do I send people when they have suicidal thoughts to crisis and who decides if they go into the hospital crisis. So this all makes sense, right? Do you know what my training was Rob in suicide to work on a crisis team back then? Oh man, I'm scared to hear. I shadowed another clinician for two shifts. Now, don't get me wrong, I learned a tremendous amount in general working on a crisis team, but guess what I didn't learn? I didn't learn about suicide. So fast forward years later, I get the opportunity to work with the trauma center and uh, I'm, I'm really impressed by them and the work that they were doing and especially the director. Uh, so I begged them to keep me on after our FEMA funded crisis counseling program that I had worked in. And it turns out all they had was one part-time job as a suicide preventionist. And I'm like, oh, that's like going right into the lion's den, right? I wasn't expecting to go quite that far in. Right. And But but I took it thinking, I'm just going to do it for a couple of years and see how much I can learn. And I have to be honest with you, the first couple of years were really hard for me because there were a lot of things I thought I understood about my friend's death um, that I didn't. Mm. Right? And I know you had a conversation with Jack Jordan, who was amazing. And Jack Jordan talks about the tyranny of hindsight. Yeah. And that that was a huge, huge thing for me um, coming into suicide prevention in particular, because there were all these things that I learned that were warning signs and that were risk factors and even things that I may have said that were not helpful. Um, and so you know, the first couple of years in suicide prevention work was very, very hard on me. I did not expect I would stay in it for a particularly long time, uh, just long enough to be a good outpatient clinician. That was my goal. But I met the most amazing people in this work, um, both lost survivors, attempt survivors, people in the field. Uh, and even though every once in a while, I think I've still had days where I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's those people. It's people like you, Rob, really, that keep me coming back. Um, it's the community that we've built in suicide prevention and suicide loss. Hmm. So that's that's how I got here. Um, one thing led to another, and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't change any of that now. Hmm. Well, thank you for saying that, and thank you for sharing your experience. It sounds like over the course of your career, you've just been very open-minded about exploring new opportunities. And one thing led to another, and that's that's how you find yourself where you are today. Pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, I think it would have been really easy to have jumped ship and given up at any point along the way when, when you felt like, ah, this isn't a good fit, or especially after finding out you went to school for three years and couldn't do what you wanted to do. Uh, that'd be pretty disheartening. Oh, it was devastating. Absolutely devastating. Yep. Oh, man. Um, I, I think I'd like to shift at this point in the conversation and, and talk about some of the work that you're doing today, which is what I saw you present on at um, AAS, which I found to be really fascinating because of the shift I saw in myself 
within the course of your hour and a half presentation, which was in the beginning, sat down, your PowerPoint popped up and I'm like, oh, she's going to be talking about the soul. I already had all these assumptions about what it was going to be about, what I was going to hear, so on and so forth. And I walked away feeling not just impressed, but incredibly hopeful that there are people like you doing this work and taking a look in non-traditional ways, at least in the field of psychology, um, to know that there are folks out there looking at what, what exactly are we missing? And one of the biggest takeaways I had from that presentation is just the obvious, right? We talk about the mind, we talk about the body, and that's kind of where it stops when we talk about managing mental health conditions, managing depression. It's like, you know, what medications can you be on? Are you exercising? What's your diet like? Um, do you have like, do you have an existing social circle? But we don't look at what else could be under the hood. And I think that's what some of your work is doing. So with, with that background, I'm hoping you could start us off by telling me what, what is the soul? How do you define what the soul is? That's part of what I really love about it, Rob. Um, it's not for me to define, right? So in all of the work that I've been doing around the soul, uh, I've been interviewing people literally around the world. And one of the things that I think is really exciting right. is that there's there's similarities in what people say the soul is, but each person has their own slightly different take on what it is. Um, and I, And I think that's actually really exciting, right? So for... Um, you know, a, a decent number of people, they think of the soul as being, you know, yes, a part of who they are as a person, but also being the part of them that's going to live on beyond death or go to heaven or, or, or whatever. It's very closely related to spirituality. Um, from what I'm finding for about half the people out there, they feel that way. But the other half, um, it doesn't mean that they don't think the soul exists, right? And, and that's what's really kind of cool about it. For the other half, um, the way that they see it is they they don't necessarily believe anything happens or they have varying ideas of what might happen when we die. Um, but they all consistently report that it's the essence of who we are as a person, it's the deepest part of ourselves. Um, one one definition I was given by a group of English language learners, I was doing a, a soul exhaustion workshop and at a community college. And I said, you guys can look at Google Translate, but you can't look at the actual definition. So they put soul into Google Translate and you see right away, they're all like, oh, okay, they, they right away. Um, so I said, what is this? And one of the young women said, it's the real me. Mm. Right. And so even though I've heard these absolutely brilliant explanations of what the soul is, and I know you heard some of them because I play um, clips from the interviews with researchers and practitioners around the world talking about it. And, and some of them are, are also very beautiful, but there was something really striking about that it's the real me. And so, and, and for me, that was the whole, right? So you can tell me about the nightmares, you can tell me about the flashbacks, you can tell me about all the things that are gonna happen or could happen in my mind from the trauma of losing three friends violently. Um, and then there's the obvious with the grief, right? You know, the sadness and the longing and, and all of those things. But what I haven't heard people talk about is what happened to the real me, right? Um, and so this became really fitting for me in the context of being a loss survivor, 
Um, and so that's where it started, was really thinking about it through the lens of, a, of being a loss survivor. But the more I dug into it, I realized that there's things that happen in our life commonly that deeply impact the essence of who we are as people and the way that we feel about ourselves and the way that we experience the world. And that's the part I don't hear a lot of people talking about. Um, so that's that's where the soul is taking me, is really understanding sort of those deepest parts of who we are as people. I, I love that. And I love that definition, the, the real me, because that's how I, maybe not in those same words, but that's how I would define it maybe the essence of who I am and, and why I love that you're doing this work and applying it to the world of suicide is because I believe that there's this soul connection between the folks that we lose and the folks who stay behind, where it's obvious that for someone to make the choice to take their own lives, they have to be in a state of, I think what you would call soul exhaustion, right? Uh, a, a state of being their essence being depleted and, and losing connection and sight of who they are. And then on the flip side of that, once they make the choice and actually die by suicide, there are all these people left behind that are now going to be somewhere on that same cycle of getting to the point that they are also completely exhausted and depleted because they lost someone that they profoundly love in in an unexplainable way. Um, so with that in mind, could you tell me a little bit about how you would define soul exhaustion and how you would relate it to suicide? I, I think you're exactly right. I, 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 this is, and I'm still working on it. So I wanna give that disclaimer, right? This is, this is a concept in development. You know, but I, I have thought a lot about what you just said, which is what happened to the essence of who my best friend was, right? And the way that I see it is, I don't even know if she really knew who she was. She had been through so many horrible things in her life and she had been chalked up to a series of diagnoses. For which the solution to all of the problems was this medication and that medication and this medication. And, you know, I distinctly recall her talking about why she would take herself off of it, which is because she didn't, she didn't feel alive anymore. She didn't feel like herself. Right. So she would make references to like, I'm not myself, um, which to me is that essence of who you are. And, and that's how she felt. And other people, you know, are hesitant. I listen, and I want to be very clear. There are people out there that I know well who will tell you that medication has saved their life. So this isn't an anti-medication statement at all. What it is, though, is sort of asking us to say, what's stopping us from asking what's happening to who you are? Right? It's a yes and, not an either or. Right? Um, but I don't know that anyone ever asked her that. And I don't think anyone ever helped her connect the dots between the things that had happened in her life and the, the experiences and symptoms she was, she was having. I think she felt, you know, that her impulsivity, that her, um, at times she could get aggressive. I, and I think she chalked all of that up to that. She was really a terrible person. And, and I don't believe that. I don't believe that at the essence of who she was, I do not believe she was a terrible person. 
I believe that a lot of those behaviors were coming because of all the bad things that had happened in her life. So in that way, this idea of soul exhaustion is very trauma informed, right? And it's asking people to think about if I get down below all of these bad things, who are you underneath all that? Um, and I think that is exciting for people to think about. So that's part of what's driving me with this concept of soul exhaustion. But the other piece of it, which you also heard in my, my plenary, is that when we think about what's happening to the essence of who somebody is, it brings us a whole new list of possible things that are going to help them. Mm. Right. Um, and that's where I get excited. Like the soul exhaustion, I've had incredible feedback, including at AAS, um, especially from the lost survivors who said, nobody's ever come up with a term that felt like it actually fit what, what, what I went through before I heard soul exhaustion. Um, and I'm, and I'm thrilled, right? I think it's really important for us to have language that feels like it fits. But the part of soul exhaustion that excites me the most is thinking about what are the things that we can do in our lives to help um, recover from soul exhaustion. I think that's where the hope lies. Yeah, beautifully, beautifully said. Um, it does give me a lot of hope as well. But what I'm wondering is working on this from a research standpoint has had to be challenging in some ways. And I'm assuming you've maybe heard some things challenging what you're finding out along the way. Like I'm even thinking sitting here as you're, as you're describing soul exhaustion, I could see how some would maybe say, yeah, that's depression. You're talking about depression. I'm wondering what, um, what pushback, if any, have you gotten from um, the scientific or psychology communities and how has it helped motivate you and, and steer the direction that you're heading with this work? And as a second part, how would you distinguish the difference between depression and soul exhaustion? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so that you're going to have to remind me of the two parts. So I want to start. Um, I, can I start with the depression and soul exhaustion first? Please, yeah. I think that that's up to the person living it. I was doing a roundtable with men to talk about men's mental health, and I, I had I had all different men there. I had painters, I had law enforcement, I had firefighters, and I had a farmer. And the farmer said to me, and this, this really struck me, he said, just because I'm depressed does not mean I have depression. Mm. And right away, my mental health, right, because I'm indoctrinated into this field as much as any other clinician was, um, my mental health was like, sounds like denial to me, right? But, but I, I, I really wanted to hear him out. So I think the most, um, my greatest asset is that I'm really truly am curious. Um, and better or, or for better or for worse, I don't think I'm smarter than the people who live these things. I really don't. So I want to hear it from them. So I asked him to explain to me, you know, could you explain that to me? Because I'm really interested in what you mean. He said, I'd be crazy if I wasn't depressed. I went through a nasty divorce. My wife moved six hours away. I get to see my child three times a year. Half my money's going. I don't know how I'm going to sustain this business, right? And he listed all of these very real, very tangible things. He said, and then, and then you want to say I have a disorder called depression because I'm tired all the time and I'm crabby. He goes, well, don't you think that it's reasonable? 
that I'm crabby and tired? And I was like, kind of. Yeah, I kind of do, right? And I started to think about it because I've had certainly had times in my life where because of things going on around me, um, you know, I probably would have met the criteria for depression. Uh, and I thought that was a really valid point. And I realized, especially in working with men, because this is super interesting, what we find is that men are more willing to acknowledge a substance use problem than a mental health problem, which is the exact opposite of what, of what women are willing to do. Women are more willing to acknowledge a mental health issue like depression or anxiety than they are a substance use issue. It's very simple. It's based on the judgment and discrimination that each gender tends to face, right? Um, so I started to ask myself, what actually matters the most? Does it matter what the scientists and the researchers, because I'm, I'm actually really not a researcher, um, but does it matter more what they want, how they want to talk about these things and how they want to classify them? Or does it matter more how the people who are living these things want to classify it and talk about it? And I personally have decided that for me, I care a lot more about how the people living it want to talk about it and classify it. Um, and that's why I say, look, if you think medication might be helpful, you should absolutely give that a try. And if you think it wouldn't be helpful, what other things would you like to, to do, right? Um, and that's really what being person-centered means. So for me, um, having worked in an inner, uh, inner city mental health clinic, trust me when I tell you there is no doubt that mental health conditions exist in my mind. Um, but with that said, I'm not necessarily convinced that every person who struggles has a mental health condition. Um, and so, you know, I think that soul exhaustion can be caused by a mental health condition when you're struggling from depression, when you're struggling from bipolar disorder or post-traumatic stress, that's gonna have a deep impact on how you experience the essence of who you are. So I think it's very likely, in fact, that you would see those two things together. I also believe that if you've been experiencing soul exhaustion long enough, um, that you would be absolutely be at risk for developing a mental health condition like depression or anxiety. Um, so I don't believe that this is an either or. I think that the two things can work together. So that was your first question. Your second question was the pushback. Um, so of course I've gotten a little bit I'm really happy to tell you, um, I was kind of nervous walking around the European Suicide Prevention Symposium with my recorder asking people if I could interview them. Uh, and, you know, you heard, right? You heard the reactions that I got from folks. Um, I did about, I think it was, I think the total was 32 interviews. Um, and one person looked right at me and said, I'm a scientist. There's no such thing as the soul. This is ridiculous. Okay. Um, another person was very uncomfortable and we later, it, it's, we later followed up and it sounds like they may have had some religious trauma. And for them, they heard the word soul and made a sort of instant connection um, to religion, which as you can tell, by the way, I'm using it, it, it does, the soul, the way that I'm talking about it does not necessarily have any relationship to spirituality or religion. And that's very dependent on the individual. Um, and other than that, everyone else was willing to have a conversation about it. And the vast majority of people, a couple of folks did put it into that spirituality context, um, but the vast majority of people, and I'm actually 
having a meeting very soon to have someone do some coding work on the interviews. Um, so I'll be able to give you absolute numbers by then, or at some point, I hope. Um, but the vast majority of researchers describe the soul as the deepest part of who you are. I thought that was really exciting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Other pushback I've gotten from people, um, I have had people tell me they feel that I'm insulting the mental health field, uh, you know, by implying that they don't talk about this enough. But I've been in this field for a really long time and I have not heard people talk about this very much. So I, I kind of just say, well, boy, I'm really sorry that it felt that way and move on. Um, but for the most part, I have not had a lot of pushback. That's that's good to hear. Um, I could see maybe why some people would feel threatened by 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 you taking this on and saying that it's not talked about enough. But the the way I'm looking at it is it could never be a bad thing for someone to explore what could be done better within a given field. Um, and like I like I said earlier, it gives me a lot of hope that you're you're doing this work. Um, what I would be really curious about is if you were to approach a group of folks who identify as atheists, for example, who maybe really have a strong opposition to the religious or spiritual definition of the soul, how they would define it or if they would at all. Um, I, I mean, I don't know until I get out there and I test it. Uh, but I think once I explain that this concept may or may not be spiritual for people um that even for people who don't have any beliefs around spirituality or don't believe in spirituality they often see it as meaning this my experience is that most people so far have related to it um but we have not done official studies uh so i don't want i don't want to give you a definitive answer but what's interesting um in the two one very informal, one more formal, but still not official research um, polls that we have done. What I found is that uh, in the first one that I did on my LinkedIn, so very informal, but of the people who responded, 85% said that they believed in the concept of the soul. Um, in a more formalized one that I did with a colleague, um, looking at the impact of suicide loss in the workplace, we asked the same question, uh, and 90% of the respondents reported that they believed in the concept of the soul. Now, the reason that's really interesting is because if you look at the data around what percentage of Americans believe in God, it's much lower than that. Yeah. So it does tell us that, you know, I mean, we're making assumptions at this point because believe it or not, it's very hard to get people to research the soul. We have not been researching the soul for many years. Um, but what it implies is that there's going to be a group of people who don't associate this this concept to religion. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Uh, I'll be curious to see what what comes out of it if you do tend or if you do take the research that way. Um, two more questions on the soul, and then want to give you an opportunity to share anything on it that maybe we didn't talk about. I think why it's so easy to address mental health conditions with things like medication and hospitalization and therapy is because those are um, those are easier routes that we understand when it talks about dealing with someone who may be suffering from soul exhaustion 
I'm assuming it's probably a little bit more challenging to understand how you would address the root cause and underlying issues, especially if a lot of them are rooted in trauma. Um, so for someone who is depleted in that way, what are some things you would say that they could do to return back to the real version of themselves? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm actually in the process, don't get too excited because our goal is a year of writing a workbook, uh, a soul exhaustion and soul care workbook. And so we've identified several things um, that people could do. And we're looking at sort of some of the easier action steps people can take to the more complicated ones. So for example, one of the easier ones is time in nature, right? And what's beautiful about this is, you know, there's not a clinician in the United States who would say that doesn't help people, right? Every clinician would be like, well, we tell people that all the time. So all of these things that we're coming up with, um, you know, are things that I could show you research to prove that we know they help. The difference is we might disagree on why they're helping, mm. right? Um, but time and nature, we also know that mindfulness skills, um, working on mindfulness, meditation, those types of things can be incredibly helpful for helping people get back to the essence of who they, they are. Um, we know that social connections are incredibly important. We live in a funny time, Rob, and I, I and everybody wants to blame social media for everything. And I'm a little hesitant to do that. Um, but where it seems like more than ever, most of our social interactions are actually pretty superficial. And so when we look at soul care, it's really encouraging people to think about the social connections that fill their soul, mm -hmm. right? That bring out their best self. Um, who are the people who make you feel um, like you can truly be yourself with and that they appreciate who that is, right? So part of the work is is thinking about how are we prioritizing our time? I think time is a very important piece, but also are we living by our own moral compass, right? When we look at people who have this strong moral compass, but then they're they're telling themselves lies so that they can do things other than what their moral compass tells them to do, um, those are people I'm confident are going to be experiencing soul exhaustion, right? And so there's a lot of different pieces. And as you know, because it's the one I think I spoke the most about at AAS, um, is one of them is forgiveness, right? And thinking about how do we forgive? And I, and I talk about three different types of forgiveness, all of which I believe are going to fuel our soul. Um, the first one is forgiving other people finding that forgiveness for others, because when we hold on to that anger and that resentment, it exhausts us. And sometimes it makes us think, you know, and, and even say things that aren't true to who we want to be as people, right? Or aren't true to who we are. We really are. Um, the next one is asking for forgiveness from others. Most of us have hurt other people, even if unintentionally, right? And so what does it mean to to own that and to ask for forgiveness um, and to be able to let those things go. Um, and then the last and maybe the hardest is finding ways to forgive ourselves, right? And that's that takes real work. So that's what this workbook is gonna be doing is creating a roadmap um, for how to heal from soul exhaustion through soul care. And listen, a great clinician would do lots of these things. I'm not suggesting they wouldn't, but we know that you know, nearly half of the people who die by suicide have never been in front of that clinician. And of the people who did die by suicide, I might argue that some of them never got to the right clinician, right? 
Um, and I also want to be very clear, there are cases where they had an amazing, very skilled clinician who did every single thing that they could do and that person still was lost. So I, I don't want to give the impression that suicide happens um, because a clinician didn't do a good enough job, but, but in some cases they may not have had all the tools. So my hope is to start to really expand um, the way that we think about what's going to help. And, and I, this is fueled in part by my own experience as a loss survivor. I couldn't even begin to guess how many medications she had been on. But I, I, you know, I mean, I can remember there was a diagnosis of bipolar. There was a diagnosis of um, borderline person. I mean, it, and the hospitalizations and those didn't help at all, right? Um, so I think it, we have to, we have to think outside those boxes, especially because we know in the United States, um, Western medicine doesn't fit for all of the cultures that are here in this country, right? And so I think we really have to be creative and, and speak the language um, that the people living it are, can relate to. Totally, totally. Yeah, I like what you had to say about anger, resentment, and forgiveness, and um, being someone who's worked through uh, a couple different 12-step programs, that's the essence of it right there. I mean, in, in a few of the steps, you're taking a look at resentments that you hold against other people and yourself, and taking a look at how, how those impact you and learning to how to forgive those people. In some later steps, you're literally making amends and trying to um, trying to own some of the things that you've done that have hurt other people uh, beyond just apologizing, like really seeking forgiveness. So I like how what you're doing, and I think you kind of said this, is not like trying to turn the field upside down on its head and say, look, there's this whole brand new way to do things you're taking all these different pieces and looking at them through a new lens. Well, and 12 steps are, th th listen, I think AA is one of the most brilliant programs that was ever created. And, and also I am an advocate for harm reduction. I'm an advocate for medical, medically assisted treatment. But my fear is what I am seeing in the field is that more and more people are getting the medically assisted treatment and they're not doing the 12 step work. And I'm really concerned about that uh, because the medically assisted treatment helps with the dependence. It helps with the physical symptoms of the dependence, right? And it is getting the person off of the substance that um, is, is clearly impacting their mind. But what medical, medically assisted treatment is not doing is speaking to the essence of who that person is. And that's what 12-step work does. Yeah. So I think, I think, you know what, now that you say that, I've never thought about it before, Rob, honestly, but I think that um, my love of the work of 12-step programs is probably part of what is influencing me in thinking about soul exhaustion and soul care. It's, it's so cool because I see so many similarities. And I think what you're speaking to now is the medically assisted route is pretty good at keeping people abstinent from the substances that are plaguing them being abstinent from substances doesn't equal living a sober, impactful, purposeful life. And I think that's where not just 12 step programs, but any recovery program that's community oriented, that's what it's trying to do is not just keep you abstinent from substances, but help you be the person that you want to and, and can be, which I would say is, is really closely related to 
getting getting your soul back or um, getting closer to the best version of yourself. Absolutely. Yep. Um, this is a, a bit of an out there question, and it um, it does kind of look at the soul through the kind of spiritual or religious context. But I'm curious what your thoughts would be, if any. Um, wondering what so with what we've said about the soul being the real version of yourself the essence of who you are i'm wondering what happens to that essence when someone dies and further when someone dies by suicide is it the same is it different uh is it just we we have no idea what what would you what would you say to that I love this question. I mean, I have no idea. I have no idea. I can only tell you what I feel. And, and, and look, it might be ridiculous. I have no idea. Um, but the way that I sort of imagine it is that when someone dies, their soul kind of splinters, right? It goes out into the, into the world around us and, and it implants a little bit into all the people that love them. Right. And so this is just this is just how I experience it, right? I carry a little bit of each one of those friends with me. I carry a little bit of my dad with me, um, and I I feel them with me, right? Um, so that they become kind of a part of who we are. And I and I think from a cultural perspective, you know, some some cultures talk a lot about ancestors, right? And the the power of the ancestors. And so for me, I, I feel like this is sort of the same way that we carry our ancestors with us. But I also think we carry, we carry all the people that we love with us, right? What that looks like, I have no idea. How it happens, I have no real idea. Um, you know, I would love to believe that people go somewhere that's really awesome. And, and when they get there, it's the essence of who they are that goes and not all of the pain that they had, not all of the suffering that they had. I would love to think that's true, but I just don't have any idea. But I do know that I hold these people with me, that they're, they're with me still. Absolutely. I, I definitely feel that way as well about people that I've lost. It has felt different with my dad. Um, bear with me. This I'm like forming this thought in real time, but it makes sense in my head. So I'm going to see if I can make it make sense out of my mouth. But I feel like and you said it perfectly before um, about your friend, it's she lost touch with who she was. And I believe that about my dad as well. I don't think he had any connection with the person that he really was at his core. It's almost like his soul was tainted is not the word I'm looking for, but it gets the message across, right? his soul was hijacked with all of these external things, a lot of them trauma, a lot of them substance abuse and dependency. Um, and when, when he died by suicide specifically, I do think splinter is the perfect word for that. I think a lot of that splintered away and what lived on is the essence of who he was because that's who I feel and who I remember my dad's sense of humor and the way he would cook a steak like these are the things of like who my dad was that like it gives me chills talking about it because it it's like he's still here but those parts that splintered out I think get embedded into the people closest to the loss yeah. um, those those parts that were 
the pain and the suffering and the trauma and the hurt. Um, I, I do think I took some of that on for my dad. Um, I don't think that just vanished when, when he died. I do think some of that was spread onto those who survived his loss. You know, I've never thought about it in exactly the way you're saying it, but I would have to agree with you. Uh, you know, it's been a very long time and I, I choke up often still when I think about her and during the week between, um, her birthday and the anniversary of her suicide, I, str I still struggle quite a bit and I cry quite a bit. Um, so I would agree with you. I have, while I don't think it probably compares to the pain that she had, um, and maybe it's because a bunch of us had to take it on, but I certainly do think that I carry, I carry that pain. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, good. I think I did a better job getting that out than I thought I would. But um, before I segue into one of the other things that I'd like to chat with you about before we wrap, I'm wondering if there's anything else on this topic that you feel compelled to share, anything maybe we didn't talk about, uh, or any questions that you have related to the soul or soul exhaustion? Well, I would love to hear, um, you know, because you said that it really was hopeful to you to hear it. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit from you what made this idea of soul exhaustion feel hopeful to you. Yeah, um, I think it's for a lot of the reasons that uh, that you expressed at the beginning of our conversation, being someone who has watched the system fail folks that I really love and care about, including my dad, and then being someone who's been on the other end going through some of those same systems, having gone through hospitalizations, having gone through substance abuse treatment and rehab, um, having gone through extensive psychiatric and psychological care, I've had this feeling of something's missing. It's something's missing. You know, I can take these medications. I can, yeah, take this label or diagnosis and try these different talk therapies and EMDR and all this stuff. And it's all great and all helping me. Um, but what, what is it that's missing? And I think this, if not, if this isn't the answer, I think it is getting us closer to the answer. Um, and it's something that is going to take a radical, a radical approach to be able to consider this being realistic or possible. And that's what gives me hope is to know that there are folks like you who are willing to say, hey, like being part of these communities, you're willing to say, hey, guys, I think I think we're missing something. Do we consider this? Um, and that just that's the part of it that gives me hope is knowing that there are other people who feel that way too. It feels very validating to know that folks like yourself who are on the other end, um, being part of this field that also feel like, Hey, something might be missing. And I think we could do better. Yeah. Well, just to fuel that hope for you, Rob, um, there are some very prominent people in this work who are my biggest cheerleaders. So uh, I'm not an Island out there at all. Um, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, who is one of my dearest friends and a, an incredible mentor. Um, she was my first cheerleader. I would never have even started the interviews without her. Um, and since then, you know, I have gotten several other people who are like, yes, like this is, this is important. And I think the way I think about it is the, the therapy, the medically assisted treatment, um, you know, all of those things. Yes. I want to, I want people to live. I want them to survive. 
But when I think about soul exhaustion, I think about, and I want them to thrive. Mm. I want them to have a life that feels worth living, right? Um, for me, it wouldn't be enough to just make it so my best friend didn't die. I want her to not have died and to have had a life that was fulfilling for her. I love that. That's, that's the soul care. Very, very well said. Um, yeah, I, I feel good about what we covered related to the soul. I think folks listening to this are going to be able to take a lot away from it. Um, I, I wouldn't be doing a service to myself without talking about some of the work that you've done related to men's mental health. So I think that's where I'd like to wrap the conversation today. Um, a big driver in starting this show for me, as, as you know, you know, the questions that come up after losing a loved one to suicide, all the whys. And the one why that I just get hung up on all the time is probably the biggest one, which is like, why, why did my dad have to die? And why do so many people like my dad continue to die? And I do think that is the biggest question out there, right? As we try to understand some of the shifts in statistics around suicide and the populations that are being more heavily affected, um, where men between the ages of about 45 and 60 seeming to be really one of the biggest groups that are affected. That's where my dad fell. That's where some of my friends' dads who have died by suicide have also fallen. Um, and I know you've written a series of manuals, um, the, the mental health manuals, um, which are specific to men's mental well-being and mental health care. Um, so I definitely want to pull on that a little bit. And I'm hoping that you could tell me what is it about, what is it about men that, backtracking even beyond, what, what is it that made you write those series of manuals? What is it about men's mental health that's different? Why do we need to approach it in a different way? And what have you learned from doing it? Yeah. Um, so I love working with men. I know this comes as a surprise. Um, and obviously there are exceptions, but men and women are very, very different in how they think about things, how they experience things. Um, and especially true for, you know, groups who don't fall into our cisgendered norms, right? Um, but I became a suicide prevention specialist specializing in men uh, in 2012. That was the job I took for the exactly the reason you just gave, right? Because that was the bulk of who was dying by suicide. And I think there's a couple things that are really important to, to recognize. Number one, yes, the men are dying by suicide no most four times more often than women. But women attempt suicide nearly four times more often than men do. So if we're talking about who's experiencing suicidal despair, it's actually more women who are experiencing mm -hmm. that. Um, and so why is it that men are dying? Well, the most obvious answer is lethality. Men tend towards more violent means that are more effective. In fact, my best friend, um, I told you she had had seven suicide attempts. The first six all involved overdose, which is one of the lower, less lethal means. And thank God, because she was able to be rescued each time. But the time that she died, she died because somebody had left a firearm unsecured. Right. So lethality is a big part of what makes the difference. It's not about who's experiencing the crisis more often. It's not about who's more serious. So when I look at men, 
um, which is my group, right? And, and specifically the working aged group that you're talking about. Lethality is a big part of the conversation. But there's another thing that comes up loud and clear for me working with men. Women, we're allowed, we're allowed to talk about it. We're allowed to talk about the hard things we've been through. We're allowed to cry about it. Um, you know, and it's interesting because we talk a lot about how sexism hurts women and there's no doubt that it does, right? Like, obviously it does. I could sit here for three more hours and tell you all the ways in which sexism is harmful to women. But what we don't really talk about is how sexism is harmful to men. And, and it is. These gender stereotypes, they don't just hurt women. They don't just hurt the LGBTQ community, although they certainly do harm them but they also hurt men because there's not just the discrimination that you face in the world, but there's also the, the internal bias that you put towards yourself. And for men, um, especially these high risk groups like law enforcement and construction, right? I'm not gonna use the term hyper-masculine. I don't, I don't like that particularly. Um, but they are in a masculine culture where needing help is still seen very much as weakness. And so what I wanted to do, because I meet all these tough guys, right? Like they're cops and they're Marines and they're Navy SEALs and they're tough guys. And they would tell me these phenomenal stories, right? I'm kind of safe, I'm a female, I'm small, I'm a clinician, but they would tell me these incredible stories of the things they'd experienced in their lives pain, painful stories. And they'd also share with me the ways in which they had worked their way out of that thing. And I'd be listening to this one guy and thinking to myself, God, I wish the guy I talked to three days ago could hear him, right? Because like he's saying so many important things and that guy would have had that moment of like, oh, I've had that experience too. And I thought, how do I make it so that this guy can hear that guy. How do I break down the walls and the barriers? So I reached out to my friend, Sally, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, I mentioned before, and I said, um, Sally, I have a crazy idea. Um, she now tells people that she no longer even listens to me once I say I have an idea. She's like, <laughs> um, she goes, okay. And I said, Sally, what if we put out a call for submissions and we ask men to share their stories? and we publish a book with these men's stories. So our thought is like, it'll take us a couple months. Well, you know, if we get 10 stories, we can build it off of that. And we knew we wanted to make it like a manual so that it was, and this was from actually talking to men and asking them what type of book would you want? They said, look, I wanna be able to flip it open, go to the thing that's a problem for me and then figure out, right? We also know from all of the work we've done with men, and I actually think it's true for women too, most of us want to try to figure it out for ourselves first. Mm. And if that doesn't work, right, like we'll go to the next step. So we put out the call for submissions. Rob, we got so many stories. Our book was going to be over 700 pages. Oh my gosh. And we were like, there's no way, like nobody's going to read a 700 page book. Never mind. Like, I don't know that we can even put it together. So we decided to break it up into four books. The first book is an overview. It's a little bit of each category. Um, the second book is our upstream book, which makes sense. It's the color green. And that's all um, 
like long before, if you think about it, like a car, that's general maintenance, right? So like getting your oil changed, checking your tire pressure, like it's making sure we don't break down on the side of the road. The second book um, is our yellow book, which is the yellow light. Um, and that one is, you know, like, okay, your check engine lights on, the car is still driving. We're not in a, you know, we're not broken down yet, but there's some warning signs here. So what do we do? And then the last book, um, which is the red book and, and the last one that we published um, is our, our overhaul book, right? So, you know, that's dealing with issues like trauma, suicide loss, suicide attempts, um, and those sorts of things. And I have to tell you, I go through every once in a while, you know, I'll pick one of them up and I go through and these are, these are incredibly courageous men, right? They're, they're men who they, it's hard enough to tell your story like this, right? Even not recorded. Um, these men wrote their stories down and they sent them into us and they knew we were putting them in a book. Uh, and we have men from all different walks of life. We have, um, you know, one gentleman tells his story about waking up in the hospital and finding out he had killed somebody in a drunk driving accident. Wow. Um, another man tells his story of having dinner with his parents and then going home not long after the police show up and he's informed that his father had killed his mother. Right. So these are very intense things, um, but the, it's intended to be a roadmap. Um, and the majority of the story is really how these men found their way back. And it, one of the things that struck me in putting these books together is one of the guys reached out to us and said, I don't think I'm recovered enough to write this for you. Right? Like, I, I don't feel like I'm a good enough role model was what they were saying. And I said, look, we want to be honest about that too. Right? You don't go from all of these things happening in our lives to like, everything's fine. Nothing ever goes wrong again. Um, but it was interesting. One of our storytellers went through a really rough patch and we were worried. And he actually wrote us, it might've been in a meeting cause it's been a while, but what he said to us is it was my turning point was writing that story. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was an incredible experience. I learned so much from these men. I have a different view. You know, other people see courage as running into the burning building, which that is a type of courage. Um, but for me, these men sharing these stories, to me, that was um, a phenomenal level of courage. And so you can get those books on Amazon. Uh, you can also find them on my website at Um, And shout out to our storytellers. We did do some of the writing, but the power of the books, it's, it's those men and their stories. That's the power. Fantastic. Thank, thank you for explaining that. And I will put links to uh, both your website as well as um, Amazon links to get those books in the show description. Um, I do want to be mindful of your time. So I think I will leave you with just the question of, is, is there anything we didn't cover that you were hoping maybe we would um, in, the, in the last few minutes here? I don't have anything else except just to say, Rob, thank you so much. It means um, while I appreciate all of the support that I've gotten to have a fellow suicide loss survivor say that this idea of soul exhaustion and soul care is hopeful to them, um, that's the steam I need to keep pushing. So I really appreciate um, your feedback and the opportunity to be on your podcast with you. Thank you. I, I just want to reiterate that I really appreciate you and admire and respect the work that you're doing. 
Um, the work you do is very important and um, helpful to me as well. I know uh, a lot of other people. So thank you for what you do and thank you for coming and sharing it here with me today. And I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully chat with you again soon. I would love that. Thank you, Sarah. Hopefully, hopefully when the workbook comes out, we can, we can connect again. I would love to read it with you. Great. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Bye-bye.